0: Exodus chapter 12, uh, verses 29 to 42. We skipped this chunk last week as we were going through Exodus. We're going to look at it a little more carefully today. And if you don't have a Bible with you, you can just follow along right there in the bulletin. Hear the word of the Lord. At midnight... The Lord struck down all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, from the firstborn of Pharaoh who sat on his throne to the firstborn of the captive who was in the dungeon and all the firstborn of the livestock. And Pharaoh rose up in the night, he and all his servants and all the Egyptians. There was a great city in Egypt, uh, or sorry, there was a great cry in Egypt for there was not a house where someone was not dead. Then he summoned Moses and Aaron by night and said, Up, go out from among my people, both you and the people of Israel, and go, serve the Lord as you have said. Take your flocks and your herds as you have said, and be gone, and bless me also. The Egyptians were urgent with the people to send them out uh, of the land in haste, for they said... The people of Israel journeyed from Ramses to Sukkoth, about 600,000 men on foot besides women and children. A mixed multitude also went up with them and very much livestock, both flocks and herds. And they baked unleavened cakes of, of dough that they had brought out of Egypt, for it was not leavened. Because they were thrust out of Egypt and could not wait nor had they prepared any provisions for themselves. The time that the people of Israel lived in Egypt was 430 years. In the end of, at, at the end of 430 years, on that very day, all the hosts of the Lord went out from the land of Egypt. It was a night of watching by the Lord to bring them out of the land of Egypt. So this same night is a night of watching kept to the Lord by all the people of Israel throughout their generations. Let's pray together. Gracious Father in heaven, we thank you that you've given us your holy word. Pray that you would give us minds to study and to understand what you've said to us here. We need your spirit to guide us. Open our minds, open our hearts, encourage us, challenge us, and lead us to fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith It's in his name we pray, amen. Amen. This morning, we are going to be talking about the topic of problems in the Bible. And what I mean by that is, uh, you know, for many of you, you maybe grew up in the church and grew up as a child learning Bible stories, maybe in Sunday school or in church, and you were taught from a very early age, the Bible is the word of God. It's inerrant. It has no errors in it. And, you know, as a child, you might have thought, well, there's a lot of comfort in that. And God has taught us in his word and we can know him through his word. And then you go off to college and you say, you know, I love God. I want to learn more about the Bible. I think I'm going to take a Bible as literature class up at Western, which is probably taught by an atheist. And you didn't know that. You weren't prepared for that. And then all of a sudden in this class, you find out there are all these problems in the text that you never realized, you were never aware of, maybe you were unprepared to, you know, to deal with. And so let me give you an example of something that you might hear. Uh, um, For example, the Bible tells us that in around the time of 1000 BC, King David and his son Solomon built this great, kingdom that went from the Mediterranean to the Jordan River, and they had this sphere of influence that was probably about the size of England. and they built all these cities and they had these armies. And so you read those passages you say, "Wow, David was a really great man." Um, but for the last quarter century of the 20th century, archaeologists had said, there is no evidence of David or Solomon ever really building every, anything. And, in fact, Israel Finkelstein, who is one of the leading archaeologists in the Holy Land, he's at the University of Tel Aviv, had uh, uh, said that in the time of David, Jerusalem was little more than a hill country village, David himself a raggedy upstart, and his legion of followers more like 500 people with sticks in their hands, shouting and cursing and spitting, not the stuff of great armies of chariots described in the text. Now, you hear something like that, it's really disheartening. You say, the Bible is propaganda? You know, it made up these stories and exaggerated these kingdoms to establish the identity of this nation, and it was written centuries later, and it's really not historical. That's really going to seriously shake your faith. Now, in this instance, even though that was the archaeological consensus for decades in 2005, They find a stone from a palace that says the House of David from the 10th century B.C., the time that David was a king. And then just a couple years later, they find a Judean city, and it's like, oh, they were building cities in in the 10th century. We just hadn't found any yet. And then a few years later, there's an archaeologist from the University of California, San Diego, that finds a copper smelting plant in Edom, from the 10th century, and Israel Finkelstein, the critic of the Bible, had himself said that Edom was dormant during that century. So Edom didn't live there. There was some other group that had a fairly large empire that was outfitting armies and had a complex economy in this copper smelting plant. And all of a sudden, the evidence is all shifted that, oh, there was a kingdom there during David and Solomon's time and you imagine that if you'd gone to that class and you'd abandon your faith and you're like oh the Bible's just propaganda and I just can't even believe that how tragic that would have been it was simply because the archaeologists were wrong we should expect that the Bible is going to have lots of problems just like everything else that humans study there are problems in science There are problems in history. There are problems in psychology, in economics, in philosophy. And human learning is about finding our way forward and working through these difficulties till we come to a place of understanding the truth. The Bible is no different. And so the question is, how well do the problems in the Bible get resolved? And I can tell you, as someone who's studied the Bible for the last 20 years, given a lot of my life, I'm amazed That how many problems that on the surface seemed really difficult if you have an open mind and patient, you will find that that they're resolved. And I'd like to use this passage from Exodus 12 as an example of that this morning. Because in this passage we find three kinds of biblical problems. A scientific problem, an historical problem, and an ethical problem. And each on the surface seems daunting, but each has an answer that I think is very reasonable. And so that's what we're going to look at this morning is these three types of problems. And, you know, before I dive into each of those, I do want to just make one more comment that we're going to find that problems in the Bible are resolved. You will never resolve all of them in your life. And so our confidence in the Bible is not based on our ability to solve all the problems. Because then our confidence would be in ourselves, in our own intellect. Our confidence is in the goodness and truthfulness of God, that God has spoken to us. And we believe that God will not lie to us. He will not deceive us. And so even if we don't understand everything the Bible says, we will still honor it as God's word and wait for answers patiently and humbly because we trust that God is good. But one of the things God does not expect of us, blind faith, these are all kinds of answers you'll find throughout your Christian life. You say, that was a big problem for me, and then it got resolved, because he wants us to use our intellect. He wants us to study the Bible and to find out that it is true. So he's not telling us to leave our brains at the door, but he is telling us to personally trust in his character and not in our own intellect. Okay, so we'll keep that in mind. As we go through these three problems this morning, first problem is this, a scientific problem. And as we've been studying through the book of Exodus, this maybe has been a problem that's been on your mind. There's almost, an almost fantastical presence of the supernatural in the story of Exodus. Uh, you know, we've already looked at nine plagues so far and things like the Nile River being turned to blood or... All the livestock of the Egyptians die and none of the livestock of the Israelites die. You know, it's just these miraculous things. And then here in this passage, we have the great final 10th plague of the 10 plagues that the Lord brought on the Egyptians. You see it there in verse 29 where it says, At midnight, the Lord struck down all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, from the firstborn of Pharaoh who sat on his throne to the firstborn of the captive who was in the dungeon, and all the firstborn of the livestock. So here's a truly miraculous event that simultaneously at this moment on at midnight, all the firstborn children in Egypt die. And this kind of story is a stretch for a lot of modern people. The objection goes something like this. These kinds of things don't happen. You know, in the ancient world, Ancient people had a magical understanding of nature, that there were all kinds of spirits that were uh, at work in nature. And so there was a kind of chaos that was always happening around them. And we now know that nature obeys certain laws. And it's not chaotic. And because we've recognized those laws that nature obeys, it's be, that's what's given us all the technological breakthroughs that we now have in our day. Is because we have this different view of the world, and um, if we believed in the chaos of the exodus, we would never have made the scientific advancements we've, we have now. How do we respond to that? Okay, a few answers to that. First, historically, the idea of a knowable order in nature, science, came from people who believed in the Bible. And uh, you know, one of the biggest historical questions in human civilization is why did science emerge in Western Europe at the time that it did? You had other civilizations like the Greeks, ancient Greeks and the Romans, or the the ancient Chinese civilizations, or the golden age of Islam that had tremendous amount of learning. They had sophisticated uh, civilizations, and yet they never discovered science. The reason is that the orderly thinking that laid the foundation for the scientific method came from the medieval theologians of scholasticism. And uh, to say that religious people won't think in a logical or orderly manner about nature is a complete denial of history. That is not where science came from. Rodney Stark, who is a, a professor at the University of Washington for about 30 years in history of religion, he wrote a book called The Victory of Reason, and he puts it this way. He says, The rise of science was not an extension of classical learning. You know, it was not an extension of the Greeks and the Romans. He says, it was the natural outgrowth of Christian doctrine. Nature exists because it was created by God. In order to love and honor God, it is necessary to fully appreciate the wonders of his handiwork. Because God is perfect... His handiwork functions in accord with immutable principles, but the full use of our God-given powers, uh, by the full use of our God-given powers of reason and observation, it ought to be possible to discover these principles. And so Christians believed there's a rational God, so through rational process, we can get to know him more deeply through the things that he made. And so to say that the Bible will keep you from being scientific is historically just false. Second answer is that the Bible does not say that miracles like this happened all the time. Um, If you think the Bible teaches that God rules his world in chaos, that's simply not true. You'll notice here in verse 40 what it says in verse 40. The time that the people of Israel lived in Egypt was 430 years. So the story of the exodus and the plagues comes after 430 years of nothing like these miracles happening. It's just ordinary laws of nature. They're living under the Egyptians. They're growing their crops. They're making families. They're doing that. That is ordinarily how God rules his world. The miraculous is not normally how God rules his world. And this is true throughout the Bible. The miracles come in spurts. So, for example, you know, in the time when Jesus came, Jesus did all kinds of miracles. That was after a period of 400 years where no books of the Bible were written. It seems like God was silent or inactive, there's none of those miracles happening. It's long stretches of just ordinary practice. And what's recorded in the Bible is largely those spurts that are intermittent throughout history. And even after the time of Jesus, if you read the book of Acts, which is about his disciples, they do all kinds of miracles as well. And if you read the book of Acts, you might think miracles were happening every day in the church. The book of Acts is written over a 40-year period. They happen at key moments when God needs to communicates something about who he is, he chooses those key moments and that's when the miraculous happens. And so sometimes when people read Exodus or the Gospels, they think that the Bible is saying that if you trust God, these kinds of things will happen all the time. The Bible says just the opposite, that they are rare and they come at important moments when God wants to make a point, okay? Third answer, though, to that question is... That science really has nothing to say about whether miracles happen or not. I think it's an important point. Scientists often talk about as if they are experts in the supernatural or, or spiritual matters or experts in about what God would do or wouldn't do. But science is the study of nature. Miracles are about when something outside of nature has interfered and come and interfered with nature. So C.S. Lewis uses the analogy like this, if you imagine a, a pool table and you take a pull cue and you roll the pull cue off of, you know, one of the sides of the table and science will tell you, you know, if you release the ball at this velocity, if you consider the friction on the pool table and the angle that it go- comes off of the side of the table, you can predict where the ball is going to end up. And, All things considered, that prediction will be pretty accurate. But if you come along right after I roll the ball and you give it a little extra push or you pick the ball up and take it off the table, the ball's not going to go where you predicted because something from outside has interfered with the system. And so the study of nature science can tell you how things are ordinarily going to work according to the, the, the rules of nature. But science cannot predict what will happen if someone or something from outside of nature interferes. And for a scientist to make any statement about whether the supernatural exists or how the supernatural would act or how the supernatural would affect nature is for him to speak outside of his area of expertise. You know, it's like for me, you know, I've studied the Bible and spirituality. If I was to go and tell you what medicine you should take... And pretend, well, just because I've studied the Bible a lot means that I'm good at medicine. That's not true. They're totally unrelated topics. And I should stick to my area of expertise. So in facing the scientific problem of the Bible, you may say these are remarkable events and it's hard for me to imagine something like this happening. That's fine. But what you can't say is that the Bible is irrational or that science Or the modern world has proven these things to be false. That is absurd. They have not been proven to be false. And one of the most impressive things about the Bible is that it gives a comprehensible and consistent worldview. It gives you a whole paradigm for understanding this world. And it's a paradigm that actually gave us science. Okay? There are other kinds of problems in the Bible, not just scientific philosophical problems. But we also see in this passage... An historical problem. And in fact, it's one of the biggest historical problems in the whole Bible. How many people left Egypt during the Exodus? And you'll notice that there in verse 37 where it says, And the people of Israel journeyed from Ramses to Sukkoth, about 600,000 men on foot besides women and children. If you've ever read through Exodus and you saw that number, and you're like, sounds like a lot of people. All right, a lot of people left. And you may not have realized how astoundingly large that number of people is because 600,000 is just men, and then there's the women and children. You're talking about a population of 2 to 3 million people, which just to give you some sense of how big that is, King County is 2.1 million people. So that's all the residents of Seattle, Bellevue, the east side, you know, all the way up to Linwood, all the way down to, to, to uh, Federal Way. Imagine all those people in one night getting up and leaving together and going <laughs> to live in the wilderness. And um, uh, you imagine the, the administration and the food and the water to feed everyone. And actually, I did a little computation myself that if they made a caravan on I-5, how long would the caravan be? And by my computation, it's about from Bellingham to Tacoma. It's over a 100-mile-long caravan. And so some people have read that and said, That's, it's hard to imagine a 100-mile-long caravan walking through the wilderness. And how does that work? How is that possible? Now, some people say, well, God parts the Red Sea. He does these plagues. He can do, the miracle, do these miracles. And I, I sympathize with that view. I think there's another way of answering the question, and it's to realize that this text is a military setting. You see there in verse 35 where it says, the people of Israel had also done as Moses told them, for they had asked the Egyptians for silver and gold, jewelry, and for clothing. And the Lord had given the people favor in the sight of the Egyptians so that they let them have what they asked. Thus they plundered... The Egyptians. The plundering of a people is something that an army does after they've won a battle. And what this is saying is the Lord has just won this battle over the Egyptians for them. And now they are the army that's plundering the Egyptians. And you can see it again in verse 41 where it says, At the end of 430 years, on that very day, all the hosts of the Lord went out from the land of Egypt. Now that word hosts, you could also translate that army. The armies of the Lord Went out from Egypt. Um, the language of this passage is military language. And so that should alert us that the expression in verse 37, when it says 600,000 men on foot, should probably be, I think should be translated differently. Um, because first of all, men on foot is not the usual use for the word men, it's more literally foot soldiers. So again, it's a military setting. But more importantly, the number 600,000 is questionable because the he, in the Hebrew phrase, it's 600 elif. And elif is the word for thousand, but it means other things as well. The root meaning of elif is ox. And uh, an ox would be used to protect a, you know, a herd of cattle, and all the cows would crowd around this one ox that would protect the cows. And so this whole herd, which could be of various sizes, was also called the Eliph, the ox that represented this whole, this whole herd. And then the use of that word began to use be used in other areas like families or tribes or divisions that could be of various sizes or, re- or referred to as an Eliph. And even more importantly, Eliph was used to denote one of the sizes of the units in Israel's army. So, for example, in Deuteronomy chapter 1, this is what is, Moses says this. So I took the heads of your tribes, wise and experienced men, and set them as heads over you, commanders of thousands, that's elif, commanders of hundreds, commanders of fifties, commanders of tens, and officers throughout your tribes. Each of those words, you know, the fifties and the tens and the hundreds, are words that are borrowed from other places, kind of like ox, to describe these numbers. And so when you realize that Israel is being described as an army, the verse should probably be translated something more like 600 platoons of foot soldiers went out of Egypt, besides women and children. 600 platoons. Based on the size of Israel's tribes at this time, a platoon likely had 15 soldiers in it. And so that would mean that the population that left Egypt was not, 2 million people, but something more like thirty to 40,000 people, which is still a substantial number. I mean, it's still a big deal for them to just get up and leave. That's still a substantial army. It's still a miracle for them to be fed in the, in the, in the wilderness. You know, to give you a sense, it's about half the size of the stadium at the University of Washington. There's a lot of people, but you can imagine them making a caravan through the wilderness. It's, it's, it's uh, something that we can imagine. Now, the point of this is not that you have to be an expert in Hebrew to understand the Bible. Verses like this are very rare. You should have a lot of confidence in your English Bible and its translations. There are few places where I would think that things should be translated differently. But it is possible for someone to say, look, the Bible says 2 million people left Egypt. That's absurd. And it, uh, and it turns out that they have dismissed the Bible. They've lost their faith simply on a translation error, that's what it could be. How tragic, how foolish, to abandon the Lord on something like that. Now the traditional dating of the Exodus was is the 15th century BC, and other people suggest it might be the 13th century BC. but those who say that the Exodus never happened say that it was written centuries this story was written centuries later, and it was made up to say this is how Israel started. But Exodus is actually filled with all kinds of subtle hints that this was written in the second millennium B.C. And I'm just going to show you one more example from this passage. If you look at verse 20, how it says, and Pharaoh rose up in the night. Archaeologists have found that it was in the first millennium. Uh, pharaohs were not called simply pharaoh. They were called by their proper name. If you look at 2 Kings chapter 23, which is much later, the pharaoh is called Pharaoh Nico. It's in the second millennium BC, around the time of the Exodus, where pharaohs were simply called pharaoh. To imagine that someone 500 years later would know that 500 years ago pharaohs were only called pharaohs, and I'm going to write it that way, is far-fetched. It's much more likely that, and there are things like that all throughout Exodus. It's much more likely that this was written very closely to those events. And, of course, the Christian tradition is that Moses wrote Exodus. We are not reading a fairy tale. It's history. Of course, we have to trust God in these uh, details, but there are many things that God gives us to confirm to us the historicity of what he's recorded. Now, in our generation, though, I think the deepest critiques of the Bible are not actually scientific or historical questions, these first two that I've addressed. But I think in my generation, the bigger question is, do we actually think that the God of the Bible is good? Many people would say, you know, the Bible is regressive. The Bible, you know, uh, causes people to be oppressed or be mistreated. And should we actually worship a God like the God of the Bible? And so that leads to our last problem, which is an ethical problem. And the ethical problem is, how could God do that to all of these Egyptians? You see those chilling words in verse 30. And Pharaoh rose up in the night, he and all his servants and all the Egyptians. And there was a great cry in Egypt, for there was not... A house where someone was not dead. Now the problem is that later in the Bible Jesus says that we should not return evil for evil. And uh, isn't that basically what God is doing here? You know in the beginning of, of Exodus the Pharaoh had the children of the Israelites killed. And now the Lord is bringing that back on their head. And is the Lord doing precisely what Jesus says not to do? Well, I think, the first, first of all, we have to understand that Jesus says that we are not allowed to return evil for evil. That's what the Bible over and over says. The reason that we should not try to get vengeance or get revenge against people who wrong us is we are supposed to say that vengeance belongs to the Lord. I know that if I try to punish people, I'm going to overdo it. I'm going to get all angry. I'm going to try to get them back. I should not be trusted without. I'm going to entrust judgment and vengeance to the Lord. He is the one who does it. And so the ethical question is not whether God has broken his own commandments. The question really is, was this an appropriate judgment on the Egyptians? And we need to remember that this is a society, the Egyptians, that for at least 80 years has harshly enslaved the Israelite people. If you were God and your children were being enslaved and oppressed and beaten, For at least over 80 years. And you went and told those people, you need to stop. And then you gave them these nine plagues and you said, listen, I'm serious. I am God. I've made you. I'm the Lord of all creation and you need to stop this. And they continue to refuse to do that. What would be the appropriate punishment? I think for us to say that we know, that's pretty, that's quite a claim. I don't know. God knows. But you might say, but it was Pharaoh who was the one who wasn't letting him go. It wasn't all the other Egyptians. But that's not true. The Egyptians have been experiencing all these plagues, these nine plagues. God has been showing them that your... Worldview is causing you to oppress these people and you need need to stop it. And we saw that last week in the Passover, God made provision for people who are not Israelites to be rescued from the judgment that was coming. He said, there's gonna be foreigners that can come and and really convert to the Lord and say, I wanna belong to you. And you can see even in this passage where it says in verse 38, look at verse 38, a mixed multitude also went up with them and very much livestock... Uh, both flocks and herds. Now that mixed multitude, this is how one commentator says that should be translated. A huge ethnically diverse group also went up with them. There were all kinds of people, Egyptians, other groups of people that were living in Egypt at that time who saw the plagues and said, Uh, I think we want him to be our God, and so we're going to follow them, we're coming with you, how do we get saved from, you know, this 10th plague that we don't want to be a part of, and many of them were saved, and you see that in in other places in the Bible, you know, when when Israel comes into the promised land in Joshua Rahab the prostitute has heard about these plagues and she's like hey I've heard I want to be on your team how can I help you out and she's brought on he's made a part of Israel and the same thing happens in the book of Ruth you know Ruth the Moabite says to Naomi your God is going to be my God your people are going to be my people the Lord is slow to anger and throughout the Bible he always gives time for people to turn from their evil and to be welcomed into his family. It's no different here. But still, you might say, God killed the firstborn in every Egyptian family. Isn't that cruel? Does he have no heart sitting up there in heaven sending down these horrible plagues? Well, the answer to that is one of the most shocking and mysterious and profound messages in the whole Bible. Because the word firstborn is charged with meaning in the biblical story. Later in the book of Colossians, Jesus is called the firstborn over all creation. God's own beloved firstborn, too, was struck when the curse fell on him on the cross. And so Jesus became not only the ultimate Passover lamb that we looked at last week, Jesus also became the ultimate firstborn who was struck down. He identified with the Egyptians. So even if we think the wrath of God is terrible and frightening, the fact is that he himself would experience the grief of a father who lost his firstborn. He's not way up in heaven apart from the Egyptians. He became one of, like one of those Egyptian fathers. And this assures us that though God may be mysterious, we know he's good. We know he loves us. We know he even loves his enemies. And ultimately, it's because of this goodness that we believe the Bible. You will have doubts. You will find problems in the Bible. You find scientific problems and historical problems. You find ethical problems. But our confidence in God's word is not because of our ability to solve those problems. Our confidence is that God sent his own son for us in love. And I know that a God like that will not lie to me. I know a God like that won't deceive me. And so I trust the book because I trust the God who wrote it. Let's pray together. Gracious God in heaven, give us hearts that receive your word with confidence. We know you are good. Give us patience. Uh, to wait for answers when we don't understand what you've said to us. Uh, give us a commitment to study and understand your word more deeply. That we would explore its depth and find in deeper and deeper ways that you are good. That you are true. And uh, that this is the story of our lives and the story of our world. So, um, Lord, I pray for those who are here who do doubt... I pray that you would show them, reveal to them your profound love in Jesus. And would that love calm and silence and settle um, those doubts, we pray in Jesus' name, amen.